1: Good evening and welcome to The Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, whenever I see teenagers being arrested for disrupting a snooker tournament in an effort to lower the temperature of the planet, stripping down to their underwear for an extinction rebellion event, or any protest action that has the deliberate side effect of attracting enormous attention from strangers and the media, I can't help wondering what sort of relationship those teenagers in question had with their parents. It's common knowledge that boys whose dads have scarpered, for example, are twice as likely to go to jail and half as likely to graduate from university. For girls, the absence of a father manifests in self-loathing, eating disorders, promiscuity, and an inability to form relationships. And whenever I see kids making fools of themselves in the name of some stupid catastrophic cause, I just think, well, there goes another product of a broken family. It's a superficial analysis, I know, and my guest tonight is going to explain that it is in fact far more complex than that. Stella O'Malley is an Irish author, psychotherapist, and regular on GB News in Britain, whose new book, What Your Teen Is Trying To Tell You, is aimed at all the parents of the roughly one third of teenagers who become nightmares. But its true readership should be much wider than that. The world in which kids are growing up these days is a stark contrast to the one anyone aged over, say, 40, grew up in. If we want our society to thrive and survive, we need to understand that the pressures on kids these days are unprecedented and often enormously destructive. Here is just one tragic example from my colleague Mark Stein's show last week. It's a TikTok video about, well, watch this and see if you can work it out. A little boy asked me if I was an angel. What? I replied. My mum told me that those who have marked wrists are angels. I'm not an angel, I replied. Of course you are. Mum said that only angels harm themselves because they don't like life and earth. This world is destroying them so they try to go back to heaven. They're too sensitive to the pain of others and their own. I stood there, shocked. You know, your mum is a very wise person. Thank you, the little boy replied. You know, she is also an angel, but she already returned home. Yep. That is a TikTok video about the supposed virtue of suicide. Found on the phone owned by 12-year-old Maya Walsh of Hertfordshire in the UK, who despite coming from a loving home and showing no outward signs of depression, succumbed to the video's evil message in October last year. Mark interviewed Maya's heartbroken father last Wednesday. Even if you don't have teenage kids, I recommend you watch it, if only to understand how cynical and manipulative our culture has become. Well, to shed some more positive light on this and hopefully offer us some ways to alleviate the problems it creates, let's bring in Stella O'Malley. Stella, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Stella, you point out in the book that the modern world is far more difficult to understand than it was 50 years ago. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Well, you know, 50 years ago, you could kind of understand how anything worked nowadays wi-fi ethernet internet we don't actually understand the vast majority of how things work and so kids kind of came into a kind of a consciousness by figuring out the radio or the car or whatever 50 years ago there was a general kind of most people could figure out how most things worked These days, it's too complex. You need a PhD to understand how the vast majority of things work. And so we're kind of relying on them out there, which is fine when it works. But when it doesn't work, I've just had my own problems with technology. It can be incredibly frustrating and it can be it can feel like there's forces out there and you've no control over it. And we've never had that. In the history of mankind, we've never had that. People could take apart things, put them together and fix them. And somebody in the family could do it generally. We can't do that now. We need the professionals. And we can just be up against the wall of technology. It's very frustrating. I think we underestimate tech rage. And I think it's actually very overwhelming.
1: I think there's another effect as well. Te- modern technology actually gives you the impression that you're being clever. You know, like you, you, know, you could be waiting for a bus and you message your mum and say, I'll be home in 10 minutes. Or, you know, you pay a bill on your bank account on your phone or whatever. And the impression it gives you, you're a psychoanalyst, analyst, tell me if I'm right. The impression that technology gives you is that you're in, you are actually in control of your life and everything's running smoothly, is that right?
0: Yeah, exactly. We're feeling sharp. We're feeling with it. Life is working well until it doesn't. And then you get slammed into a wall of reality that actually you're not at all in control. You weren't really sure how all of that worked, these text messages and paying bills. But you were trusting the, the, the greater God out there, which has become technology. And when it doesn't work, it's, it's frustrating and it makes us feel stupid. So while we feel clever when it works, we feel very stupid when it doesn't work.
1: And <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's a horrible feeling. Oh, the ups and downs of modern life. But I mean, here is a great quote from your book. Young people today are given no indication that the adult world is attractive. Indeed, it yeah. feels impossibly complex and boring. As a result, kids are reluctant to grow up, of course, but Stella I'd add to that that many adults are not setting a very very good example because they're postponing growing up themselves. Are these all signs that our culture has become a bit sick and misguided? I think our
0: culture has lost its way in many ways, I, I, um, there, you know, there's lots of brilliant ways, I don't want to create some sort of moral panic, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of needless distress, there's a lot of anxiety. Um, an awful lot of young people don't have very much interest in growing up, and this has never happened before, but not only that, this is the, really the first generation where the, the children presume that they won't be richer than their parents. Every other generation, just there was the natural order of things. You were going to do better than your parents. Wherever you came from, that was the kind of general presumption. Now that isn't a given anymore. Not only that, an awful lot of children, teenagers, young adults, they're just thinking it's too hard to be an adult. There's no fun. It's admin and it's bureaucracy. I remember when I I started, when I opened my first bank account, I was seven, I was with my mother, went down, Signed my name, thought I was as as big as anything. And I felt a shot of power, I remember. I just felt so cool that there was money in the account under my name. I remember I tried to give that gift to my children and it was a, a crushing failure. Where we went into the bank and then we had to go back out and we had to get, you know, proof of address. Now, they live across the road. The bank is across the road from me. They knew exactly who I was and who my children were. But we had to go, it was five visits to the bank tedious form fields. My kids have become slacked out and completely uninterested in the entire process. There was no shot of power. There was no sign on your on the dotted line and off you go. It was impenetrable bureaucracy. Now we all know why that is that's because of fraud but it means that the certainly the kids had no interest in becoming an independent adult. It was just pain and hassle and bureaucracy and boring. So we kind of have created this sophisticated world which when it works is great, and when it doesn't work is horrible. I've got to and say that I that think, a lot of teenagers, the concept of the emerging adult, which is kind of like, do you remember the program Friends? They kind of brought it about, which is all these kind of kids in their 20s, and they were kids, living these kind of quite babyish lifestyles, very pleasant, but kind of putting off any sort of adult decisions, like mortgages or families or babies, which is fine to a point, But it's an interesting indication that nobody really wants to grow up anymore because being grown up is facing a lot of tedium, admin, bureaucracy that frankly isn't very attractive.
1: Well, while they're putting off adulthood and uh, all the responsibility that that entails, they're being attracted to things like Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil and... uh, God help us. Transgenderism, which we will get to in a minute, but are these are these the kind of things that uh, people, that young kids, teenagers, are, are they attracted to this because they are there are no longer things like church groups and sporting teams that uh, that previous generations uh, gathered around.
0: Well, you know. I'm not religious myself but I do think that actually we're living in this post-religious age where up until recently in this generation or certainly the last one when you started to try and make sense of life in adolescence because childhood is magical and it's beautiful and the good guy always wins and the bullies will get their comeuppance then around about 13 14 kids realize oh my god life isn't fair the bullies are sometimes the most popular kid in the class and Sometimes nobody gets their comeuppance and life just doesn't work out at all the way we had been taught it would. And so a lot of these kids look for meaning, they look for sense, they look for a solution. And I think you know it's a noble aspiration. And so they might tend towards, let's say, extinction of rebellion or becoming trans and creating their own person. I can see where it comes from. It comes from, from what I, I would argue is a noble drive to make the world better. But these days, why it's going this direction, it feels like religion isn't offered as a framework, that God's in his heaven and all right with the world because there's a plan. Like I say, I'm not religious, but I think the lack of offering people a framework of somebody's in control and it's all going to plan. That is a lovely thing to hear. <laughs> and when you're 14 and you're just going, life is awfully unfair, none of this makes sense. This is awful. Not to have that kind of option, um, I think is very frightening. And I can see why they go towards big solutions, big plans of what we need to do is sort out climate change and then we'll feel better. What we need to do is create ourselves in in the image that we want, because that will make some sense of control over this chaotic world. And I can see why they want it. And I think it's a major gap in society that we aren't offering any, any of these teenagers a framework of understanding life. It's kind of like, there you go, nobody has a clue. Nobody's in charge. Nobody knows anything that's really going on. Look after yourself, <laughs> and I think that's really hard.
1: <laughs> it is hard. <laughs> that is a very, very difficult uh, world in which to grow up. I heard Jordan Peterson say the other day as a, in, in the context of advice to young people, Pursue the things that will help you get through periods of suffering because it's coming. And just stop oil and, and extinction rebellion and that all that all that gives them is a fleeting moment of moral clarity that in the long term doesn't help their own lives, does it?
0: Well, it could certainly give them a fleeting moment of me- meaning. And for some people it gives them a long-term moment of meaning. It does feel very externalized, like it's out there as opposed to it's the chaos in my head and my kind of fretting about how is my life working out. But you know that lovely phrase, life is what, ha- what happens when you're making other plans. We-, we put our energy into whatever gives us meaning in that given moment. And so long as that is something that makes the world a better place, it's good. You know, it, it it's, it's a good thing. In this world where it's very individualistic, there's a feeling of an awful lot of people are busy kind of self-righteously preaching to other people rather than getting their own shop in order. There's Indeed. a very strong vibe of us and them villains and heroes, you're on one side or the other. It's, I know it's a cliche, but we've become so polarised. You're one side or the other. Rather than thinking, we're, we're in a massive gap of meaning. It's very, very individualistic. Everybody's trying to find their own way. And it's making us pretty unhappy and disconnected and incredibly conflict-driven. That, you know, and that, that seems so unfortunate. It really does. Well,
1: talking about the the absence of meaning, Uh, one of the great meanings in life is to become a parent yourself, um, which you are and I am. But it's so rare these days to hear people, especially, you know, leaders and politicians extolling the virtues or the wonders of parenthood. Do you fear that troublesome teenagers, for example, are, are discouraging adults from becoming parents these days? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Parenting has
0: become very, very difficult. I've been, I'm I'm a psychotherapist. I've been writing about it for many years now. And parents have got a huge amount more responsibility and expectation than they ever had. Like I grew up in an era, and so probably did you, where mother knows best. And when mother said it, it was, if you follow me. And it was a very clear scenario. Now, she mightn't have known best, but certainly it gave a solid structure these days, mothers are presumed to be kind of wrecks who are failing. So while they're given a huge amount of responsibility and you have to be educator, clown, entertainer, um, psychologist for your for your child, not only do you have to be all of that, but also you're probably a fool and you're probably getting it wrong. So they're the, they're the rules from society. And that's really very, very pressurizing. So more and more parenting is seen as a very thankless um, endeavor that people are saying, well, what, why would I? Like I say, in this individualistic culture where it's all about my happiness, my sense of contentment, why would I embark on something that is thankless and people are going to tell me I'm a, I'm a dope and I'm getting it all wrong? So I can see why people are, are, are less eager to become parents. And yet there seems to be some sort of survival, evolutionary instinct that so many of us do become parents even though we're putting it off there's you know we're, we're resisting it on many levels something about the human spirit just goes on and well, so we end up becoming parents it's a tricky it's a tricky thing it to is a tricky thing
1: well i've got to say that your book what your teen is trying to tell you uh reminded me of the uh teenage years of my kids which weren't as troublesome as uh, as uh, the examples in your book but um I've got to say it is a a fine testimony to the trials and rewards of being a parent. Now let's talk about your other uh, pet topic and uh, it's not a great one, but hopefully it's one we are seeing significant changes in. Of course, it's transgenderism. You're the head of Genspect, a global organization that advocates against giving confused kids what the transgender industry calls affirmation, which is a euphemism for medically and surgically facilitating the transition to a supposedly different gender. One of the most controversial clinics providing this service, Tavistock in London, has been closed down, but the practice goes on unabated here in Australia, often with enthusiastic support from doctors, teachers and politicians, if not always the kids' parents, Now, Stella, we're seeing the reversal of this horrifying practice in some places around the world. What is the state of it now and how soon, this is a loaded question, but I'd love to hear your opinion, how soon do you think we will see criminal charges against the perpetrators of this?
0: It's changing. There's no doubt about it. You know, the leaders of paediatric transition were Sweden and they were bringing in um, medical transition and they've been following medical transition since the early 70s and when you realize that they've they've withdrawn from paediatric transition and now they will only um, operate it under a very strict clinical trial and five out of six of the clinics that were offering paediatric transition are no longer offering it and then you look at finland and they're saying psychotherapy is the first kind of go-to rather than medical Um, medical hormones or puberty blockers and things. Then you look at England, they've closed down the the largest paediatric transition clinic in the world. You look at France. So, you know, Western Europe is clearly starting to see the dangers. There's no doubt about that. Um, It looks to me that, you know, America is going to go its way. America's already got into trouble with abortion laws and gun laws, where it's a red-blue issue. It's going to run and run and run. That's what it looks like. Australia is an interesting one. It looks like it's it's it, the battle is beginning. The culture wars is beginning. There's a culture war where people believe that if you say you are a gender, you are that gender and you should get medical assistance to um, uh, be whatever you want to be. And then there's another way of thinking which is sometimes distress might manifest in wanting to be somebody else, be that a, 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 a woman or a man or non-binary. And maybe medical transition might help, but it might not help. And psychotherapy should certainly alleviate any of your distress. So as far as criminal charges are, that's not where I put my focus. I put my focus in if there are professionals, and there are many of them, um, who are telling people that it's easy to medically transition and that it could be a route to happiness, when actually all the research suggests it's incredibly difficult and the medical burden will be so heavy on your body, it will cause you deep distress and will create more problems than it solves. Then those professionals are acting inappropriately and they should be certainly censored or stopped doing inappropriate work, like a very basic tenet of first do no harm. And if you are doing harm, well, maybe they should move into other parts of professional life. Um, (laughs) And criminalising them isn't where I I just want it stopped. Yeah, fair (laughs) enough. Just please stop doing harm where I am.
1: Well, you know, suggesting that that criminal sanctions might be possible would be one way of achieving that. But uh, it's alarming that, that that this form of delusion has gone so far as, as you'd be aware, Oxford University, where Professor Kathleen Stock, was trying to, uh, was, was due to um, say that men can't be women, controversially. Stella, what has happened to universities, even Oxford University? Well, the students at least, I'm not saying the faculty are, are particularly guilty of it, but how can this form of delusion, or perhaps even insanity have got so far as a place as revered as Oxford University?
0: Well, young people have always been very prone to this kind of, you know, noble idealistic vision of a better world. And it's no doubt that young people have really jumped in on this idea that we can be whoever we want to be. And we are whatever we say we are. And you have no right to say I'm any different than what I am. And if I say I'm X, Y and Z, well, I am it because it's my subjective reality. There's something very, very alluring Tell a young person who's chaotically kind of trying to make sense of the world, and they are told, Listen, oh no, this is the new order. The new order is you are whoever you want you to be, and whatever you say is truth because it's your truth. Well, for somebody who's lost, that's incredibly alluring. And so, if everybody around you is buying into that idea of you are whatever you are, and your truth is what matters and I am whatever I am and my truth is what matters. Now it's a completely chaotic way of thinking because there is no actual, I can put my hand on a truth. It's all your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth. And um, as a result, it's chaos, but it can feel very alluring to somebody who is swept up in it. And I think an awful lot of young people are swept up in it they 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 genuinely believe it. And, you know, honestly, young people have genuinely believed lots of things. When I think of the peace and love movement in the 60s, it was gorgeous in many ways. There was a lot of lovely, lovely ideas. There was an awful lot of very noble aspirations, stop war, give peace a chance. It was beautiful. When you penetrated deeper into it, the actual psychology of of the human was kind of pasted over. And it erupted really in the 70s. There was a lot of drug addiction. The children of these of these peace and love hippies didn't really fare very well. It was very individualistic and it was quite selfish. So in the long run, it didn't really work out very well. Similarly, I would argue, this isn't going to work out very well in the long run, but it's going to be an arc. It's going to take some time for people, and people are. The detransitioners are coming out. When I st- first started, Following um, DTrans Reddit, you can go online. Anybody can go online and have a look at DTrans Reddit. I first started following it, and there was a, in 2019, and there was less than a thousand members. And these are people telling harrowing stories of how they medically transitioned because they thought they could be a different person, and that it was horrendous. That the medical complications were really, really bad, and actually they were still the same person. They woke up in the morning. There's a great line: wherever you go, there you are. Now there's 47,000 members of D-trans Reddit. So in four years, it's gone from 1000 members to 47,000. People are starting to detransition and people are waking up to this and realizing it's not what I thought it would be. It's much harder and there's an awful lot more problems than I thought it would be, but it will
1: take time. Well, that, uh, that, that change, that reversal of this trend can't happen fast enough if you ask me. Stella O'Malley, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's Irish author and psychotherapist. uh, And she's the author of the brilliant new book, What Your Teen Is Trying To Tell You, Stella O'Malley. Well, to balance things up a bit, here's a positive story about settling down and starting a family. You may not have heard of Alex Cooper, but a lot of teenage girls have through her podcast called call her daddy. Two years ago, Cooper signed a three-year, 60 million US dollar deal with Spotify, and she quickly became the most popular woman on the platform. Here is how she described the content at the time. It was amazing. It was very out there and raunchy and wild, but it was raw and we were basically having conversations that were challenging the patriarchal playbook. And so at the surface level, you would go and maybe listen to Call Her Daddy and be like, oh my gosh, this is wild. These girls are having these crazy conversations. Underneath it were themes and tropes about empowerment and confidence. The podcast was essentially Cooper and her friends, all of them pretty gorgeous, getting drunk, taking drugs, swearing, being promiscuous, and celebrating the vacuity of modern life, especially for good-looking young women. It's essentially women behaving like the worst kind of blokes. And if you have an aversion to frequently repeated misuse of the word like, then this, if for no other reason, is not the podcast for you. So I walk into dinner tonight. Oh, wow. My makeup's so bad. I can't do this. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm out. Wait, this is so... I was supposed to fully be vlogging. This is Sylvana. Those the Spotify conference went amazing. Oh, my
0: God. Last night, as you saw, I was going to a dinner. The dinner was with a group of
1: friends. So why is this a positive story? Well, Cooper had to hide this for some months, but on April 26, she announced she was engaged to be married. Quote, I owe you an explanation, she said on her podcast. I just always was like questioning everything in my life. I just never wanted to conform. Marriage to me was not something I dreamed of. She then reeled off a list of typical excuses that narcissists cling to to explain why they aren't married. She had a relationship with herself that was more important. Other married couples settle for less than perfection. It only leads to infidelity and misery and all that sort of stuff. But having realized she wanted to have children with her now fiance, her attitude to marriage changed and she has publicized it right across her platform. Her cynicism about the institution has now totally disappeared. Three years of podcasting about hedonism has ended, and her show is now morphing into a series of self-help lessons and investigations into the real reasons young women are unhappy these days. Maybe one day she will be honest enough to admit that her podcast was one of them. Hopefully her own marriage will be proof that real happiness is found in the opposite of what, what once made her rich and famous. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F R E D P A. W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Mark Stein, Alan Jones, Lyle Shelton, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, and more by going to adh.tv or downloading our app or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at seven o'clock. Good night.